Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kilowatt. My name is Bodie, and I am your host, and I'm recording at 11.30 on Friday night. I meant to, I was, I really wanted to record yesterday, but I had some personal stuff come up, and I'm still dealing with the personal stuff, and I'll probably be dealing with it for a while, and then on top of all the other stuff that's going on in my life, I'm also studying for a promotional test again, which means, uh, the shows are going to be irregular. They might be a little bit shorter. Um, I still have some great shows coming up. Uh, next week, James is going to go over some, just kind of some good EV accessories to have, especially if you're not a Tesla owner. So that, we got that little segment. The week after that, I've got a really cool interview lined up that I think is going to be so much fun. So good things are coming. Um just, you know, be patient with me. Uh, not long after that one interview, we, we've got the Tesla investors call, which is going to be a big episode. So there's still going to be lots of big episodes, but bear with me as I get through this because I just got a lot of stuff going on in, in the personal life. Nothing that's awful, by the way. It's just life, stupid life. Anyway, on this week's episode, we have an interview with Tom Cooper. Tom is a retired lawyer, and we are going to talk about the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, and we talk about product liability law and autopilot. So it's a really good conversation. Uh, Stick around after the news. Speaking of news, let's go ahead and jump into that. Rivian has delivered their very first R1T EV pickup truck to their very first customer. This is very exciting. And I want to say congratulations to the whole Rivian team. I am sure this was a Herculean effort to get to this point, And everybody that works at that company should be proud of themselves. Unless there's people slacking at that company, then they should be ashamed of themselves. But everybody else should be proud of themselves. Hyundai is delaying the launch of the Ionic 5 here in the United States. I'm very bummed about that. It was originally slated to be out fall of 2021. Now we're looking at winter 2021. What does that mean? I have no idea. Uh, It's sometime in 2021. Between now, September 17th as I record this, to (laughs) December 31st. It's going to come out sometime in that time period. Let's take a break from EV news and talk about space news. 
SpaceX launched four humans into space. And actually, Dr. Proctor, who piloted the spacecraft, she's from Phoenix. And I follow her on Twitter, and she's a very cool person, so you should follow her. Speaking of cool people, Jessica Kerr streamed the whole event, because that's her thing, is SpaceX, on her YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Jessica Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H. Sorry, Jessica. And Jessica will be back on our show in October. So that'll be exciting. Something to look forward to. All right. Tesla news. Tesla is no longer offering the solar panel subscription service. I thought this was a great idea, but honestly, I wasn't sure how sustainable it was. And it turns out it's not sustainable, at least for Tesla, it's not sustainable. So they canceled it, unfortunately. Tesla's also rolling out full self-driving beta in Canada. And right now, only a a very few amount of people have access to this beta. And if it's anything like the U.S. beta, it's going to be a very few amount of people for a very long while. But having said that, I'd like to congratulate our Canadian cousins because, honestly, I love you guys and I think you're amazing. Everybody else, too, but since we're talking about Canada specifically. And then, real quick, I read this right before I started recording, so I didn't write anything down. It's just for memory, so forgive me if I get some of the details wrong. From what I understand, Elon went on Twitter, and he started talking about the FSD beta button that was supposed to show up, I don't know, months ago at this point. So if you want to join the FSD beta, you select that button, And then magically, somehow you get access to the FSD beta. Well, Elon got on Twitter and he's like, well, if you request access to the beta, we're really going to look at your driving record or your driving stats, I guess, on the Tesla before we give that to you, which I think is a a very responsible thing for Tesla to do. And um, I'm glad they're doing it. So if you want access, be a good driver. Actually, I should say, if you want access to the beta program, you you should have been a good driver a year or two ago, not starting today. All right. This next story comes from our guest today, Tom. He tipped me off to this right after we went through the interview. The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is investigating Tesla and why autopilot has such a hard time with vehicles either blocking the lane or traveling very slow in, in the Tesla's lane of travel. That started off really well, and they just kind of went downhill. Anyway, uh, NHTSA is now asking 12 other auto manufacturers for assistance in their investigation. They're looking to compare Tesla Autopilot with other vehicles equipped with, and I'm going to quote directly from the article, with the ability to control both steering and braking slash acceleration simultaneously under some circumstances. So that was from the request from NHTSA. In addition, the 12 automakers need to list any crashes when a advanced driver assistance system was engaged. And this is any time during the period beginning 30 seconds prior to the vehicle um, crashing into something effectively. NHTSA wants to know how the auto manufacturers ensure that the driver is paying attention and how they detect driver engagement. So you might be thinking to yourself, are they just building this really big case against Tesla so they can lay the hammer down? Well, probably not. 
it sounds like what they're going to do is they're going to take all the information from the auto manufacturers and they're going to come up with, you know, like strategies and best practices for these auto manufacturers to actually follow, which I think is great. Um, I also think it's a good thing that the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is doing their job by properly assessing the market and comparing the actual features. Now, I think hands down right now, Tesla has the best level two out there. However, that doesn't mean that there are other um, assisted driving uh, technologies that other car manufacturers have that aren't good. I just think that Tesla's happens to be the best, in my opinion. Um, now, one last thing before we get into the interview Last week, I or it wasn't last week, the show before last, I broke down the 12 incidents that the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is investigating. And I basically said there were, you know, incidents of people who were misusing the technology and drunk people. Those incidents were are probably going to get thrown out. And it turns out, Tom Cooper, our guest today, he set me straight in this interview and after talking with Tom for a little bit, I can honestly say that I have a new way of approaching these kind of stories, and I learned a ton. So, Tom, thank you very much for that. And without further ado, let's jump into our interview with Tom Cooper. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, I'm really happy you are here because you're going to settle a lot of uh, misinformation today about the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration and the Tesla autopilot investigation. But before we get into that, I just want to give you a chance to tell our audience who you are and give them your bona fides. Okay. Well, I'm a retired attorney. Um, I worked for many years uh, doing products liability work. Uh, most of my work was for one large company and most of my work was in electrical products area. Um, I've had the chance to work all over the country, uh, for that company. So it's been really, really interesting stuff. I've had the opportunity to do. Um, I also have a degree in electrical engineering, which is really how I ended up getting that work because, uh, I was able to understand much better the products I was working on and the kind of issues that would come up and, kind of more quickly get a grasp on what was going on and what was going wrong. Um, and I guess the other thing that qualifies me for this is I'm a recent uh, Tesla owner. In June, I uh, got my Model Y, which I've been thrilled with and really happy with. So um, I was following podcasts and I've seen your podcast about uh, electric cars and so that's that's a new interest for me. Which version of the Model Y, and then what color? I think it's called the Extended Range, and it's blue. Okay, yeah, I like I like that blue. I saw recently a gray Model Y with the black door handles, and it was in real on the screen. It doesn't look great, but in real life, that is a beautiful looking car. Yeah, these the colors are all I think very nice. The ones that I've seen. Um, I'm surprised, you know, you have a relatively limited option and they really charge a lot for them. The default color was white and there's like no way I'm buying a white car in Massachusetts. They're just going to look like dirt 99% of the time. So, <laughs> uh, it was a lot of money to get a different color. It, it's ridiculous, but we're not here to talk about colors. No. We're here to talk about 
autopilot and uh, National Highway Trace. What, what would you call it? NHTSA? NHTSA. It yeah, Na- okay. National Highway Traffic, Traffic Safety Administration. Part of the Department of Transportation. So if you could, just in a nutshell, could you give us kind of like what the overall investigation covers? Yeah, and I'll just go back one step in that, uh, just talk about NHTSA, kind of what's their uh, authority, uh, what's their legal basis for doing anything. Uh, NHTSA was founded in the 1960s by a federal statute in response to a couple of things. One was the high number of traffic deaths that were occurring on U.S. highways as a result of automobile accidents. And one of the big factors was the book published, written by Ralph Nader, uh, Unsafe at Any Speed, which which was an expose about the uh, design shortcomings of the Corvair, I think was the car involved at the time. Um, and so Congress finally acted and founded uh, NHTSA. Uh, NHTSA has authority to promulgate safety standards for automobiles. So that's one of its main activities is, is to create uh, safety standards. And um, another thing that it does is it maintains data files uh, regarding accidents and fatalities, which is a resource for investigators and researchers, um, both in the United States and around the world, in safety issues related to cars. The um, secretary uh, of the Department of Transportation can um, order companies to do things, and the language of the statute says, to avoid an unreasonable risk to motor vehicle safety resulting from a defect. So there would have to be a finding that there's a defect, and then they would be able to promulgate orders or issue orders to companies to uh, respond to the defect. And it would have to be, according to the statute, to deal with an unreasonable risk to motor vehicle safety. So all of those things are important criteria that a secretary would have to uh, show in order to issue a valid order. And companies, of course, can object to them. And they can object to them in court and dispute whether there's an unreasonable risk and whether their car uh, has a defect. So all the all of those things are up for grabs. Uh, one thing NHTSA did earlier this year was to issue a standing order regarding uh, automated driving systems and advanced driver assistance systems. And those terms they've defined in their order. Um, the thing that's been of particular interest lately uh, has been the... Um, The second one, advanced driver assistance systems. So Tesla Autopilot and that collection of features generally falls under that category. And one of the things the order did was it requires companies, uh, anybody who uh, manufactured uh, a car, this is not limited to electric cars, uh, but has advanced uh, driver assistance systems to report accidents where those systems are potentially implicated. Uh, And, you know, lots of cars today, you see ads for them all the time. My wife has an Audi and her car does all kinds of fancy things uh, that are, would be fall into that category. So if you have an accident and one of those systems is involved, then you have to report that to NHTSA. 
So they've been collecting data since earlier this year uh, about that. And of course, they know about these and they have known about the, I think it's 12 accidents now involving Teslas, uh, which had collisions with uh, some kind of emergency vehicles, police cars or fire trucks uh, that were stopped and parked uh, in uh, lanes of travel. Uh, and highways in which Teslas had collisions with them. Um, then, with respect to Tesla in particular, the NHTSA has opened what's called a preliminary evaluation, um, and that relates specifically to the Advanced Driver Assistance System. Uh, and Teslas, of course, have several features that would fall into that category. Uh, for example, the, well, they, they call them whole collection of features under the term autopilot, uh, but it includes traffic aware cruise control, which I know many cars have now. So if, if your list, one of your listeners doesn't know how those work, it's like the old, old form of cruise control and you set the speed you want your car to go, but your car monitors what's ahead of it. And if the car ahead of you slows down, your car will slow down. And if the car ahead of you then speeds up, your car will speed up back to the set speed. And I know my car will come to a complete stop if the car in front of me stops, and it will then start up again when the car ahead of me proceeds. And so one of the things you would wonder, I wondered if there's a fire truck parked in my lane of travel up ahead, Shouldn't my Tesla stop and not run into it? Because what I expected would happen. And apparently there have been some instances, I assume, that where that's not happened. I will say one of the things you learn when you're investigating any kind of accidents is there's a lot of information we don't have about those accidents. We don't know any of the details. We don't know how it came to be that those cars collided uh, with emergency vehicles. And so we can say probably, you know, the system didn't stop the car when it should have, but um, we don't really know that. I think it's one of the things uh, NITS is going to find out. Did the system actually fail to do what it was supposed to do? Um, so that's one of the issues. Another issue related to that, of course, is whether the driver was paying attention, which they should have been. They shouldn't have allowed their car to um, have a collision. Uh, so we're going to have to wait and see what what comes out of that. Uh, under the regulations of the statute, uh, NHTSA has a certain amount of time. I thought I had written this down. Um, maybe it's 90 days or something. It's not very long. 90 days to conduct a preliminary evaluation, at which point they'll decide whether they're going to go forward with a more in-depth evaluation. Um and in that case, they can, uh, as a result of those investigations, they can issue recall orders to companies. Uh, a recall order doesn't necessarily mean you have to bring the car back. But with Tesla's, we know you can make changes in the software over the air. And I think that'll be true of some of the other electric cars coming into the market, too. Uh, so a recall may involve issuing a new generation of software. One of the things NHTSA has done in the as part of the evaluation is to issue a, a letter to Tesla requesting information. 
And this would be very typical of what you would see in federal court litigation uh, between parties in which they have asked questions and they've requested documents. And all I can say is it's a very, very extensive request for information, and it's going to be very burdensome for Tesla to comply with it. I'm sure that Tesla has the opportunity to dispute uh, the requests uh, to contest, you know, that they should have to give certain information. Uh, I don't know if they'll be able to contest it on the grounds that it's too burdensome, but um, they may contest it because they say it's not relevant. Or, um, that would be the most likely grounds. It's just not relevant to what they're investigating. So that's the status of NHTSA uh, and Tesla to the extent I know it. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Okay. So I have a, I have a couple of questions. Uh, first, the would you, because I looked through, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm barely human, but I looked through the the questions, and they to me they seemed reasonable, but they, they there was a lot of questions and asking for, for information. Um, were it, do you think it's more of a an overbroad uh, investigation, and they're trying to narrow it down, or is it like, I don't, I can't imagine it's like a fishing expedition because they're a government agency, but... Do you think they're just asking for the world and then hoping they get some of it? Well, I think uh, the government, or in the case of civil litigation, a plaintiff uh, doesn't necessarily know what information the company has, doesn't know how it's stored, doesn't know the precise way to ask for it. Uh, So they try to write these kinds of requests in a comprehensive way that will cover, you know, whatever it is. you don't, you don't want, when you're requesting information, you don't want to miss something because you worded it wrong, you made, it was too narrow, something you legitimately need and want. Uh, so I think this is kind of the normal back and forth you would see in these situations. Uh, so I don't think the government is, is doing something wrong here, uh, nor do I think it would be wrong for Tesla to push back. Uh, um, they may say, well, you've asked for this, but I want to suggest, you know, this is what you really need and here's why and maybe convince the government uh, to modify it or to agree upon how that's going to be interpreted. I think there'll be some negotiation back and forth over these kinds of things. That makes sense. And one of the things um, that you had mentioned was um, how the how the autopilot uh, system works. The, the adaptive cruise control follows the vehicle in front of it. And I think part of the problem is Elon's message because he mixes like what the current software can do yep. with a lot of future statements. And I think people are, I think that might be confusing to people. So before we get into the actual product liability stuff, let's go over some legal terms. Right. Wait, before you move, that reminds me of one thing I didn't, I didn't say about the NHTSA thing is one of the things they're certainly going to be looking at is the um, requirement from Tesla, the re- I say the requirement to the extent they can require anyone to do anything, that the driver remain attentive and ready to take control of the car. And I, I think I sent you my notes as a new owner. I went through all the things Tesla has said to me about that. Uh, before you get your car, they have online some um, videos that they give the owners to sort of educate you about how your car works um, explaining what autopilot is, explaining how to use it, explaining all the different features of autopilot. Um, I guess they call them the delivery day vehicles. 
And it is just filled. Every place you turn, it's filled with that some some version of that statement that the driver has to be ready to take control. You have to pay attention at all times. You have to keep your hands on the wheel. This is not the kind of system where you can take your hands off even. Um, and when you engage uh, traffic-aware cruise control or autopilot features, you get an on-screen warning, a little little window pops up, which I will say is small down at the bottom and not very big type. So uh, you most have a fraction of a second to glance at it. Um, you also get a manual, which you can download. And by the way, I did not get a printed manual with the car, but um, I downloaded the manual and the, the manual in numerous places has warnings about this, all of these things. Um, so one of the issues and one of the criticisms I heard expressed, I saw in the newspaper article about the NHTSA investigation was that uh, Tesla's system for trying to ensure driver compliance with attentiveness was insufficient, at least according to this one fellow. Uh, what happens in a Tesla, I know from experience, is that periodically, if the car doesn't know whether your hands are on the wheel, you'll get a little message. You have to turn the wheel just slightly just a few degrees, uh, so you exert some force on rotating it, and then the message will go away. If you don't respond to that, the Tesla will disable um, the cruise control on the car, and it will lock you out until for the rest of your trip, which assumes mean you park it and start again, uh, so you'll get locked out. And that is a method for ensuring that people are paying attention. Um not a very strong method, I would say. I don't know what's better. I can certainly imagine. Now you're not paying if you're not paying attention, but you have a hand on the wheel. You could be reading a book. You could be talking to someone. Uh, you could be, you know, doing something on your phone. Um, and when you hear the little beep saying, you know, put your hand, turn the wheel, or put your hands on the wheel, you just turn the wheel a little bit. You don't even have to look at the screen. You don't have to look at the road. Uh, it doesn't force you to do that, and it would be easy to avoid that requirement if you were driving the car and you wanted to avoid it. And uh, I've heard was this article reported that some other cars have stronger systems. I don't know if that's true, but claimed that one of the ideas I've heard is that uh, a camera in the car can see your eyes. It will be focused on your face and the software will say, okay, is he looking in the right direction? Or his head and his eyes pointed in the right direction. That, of course, doesn't also doesn't prove you're paying attention, but if you're at least have your eyes open and your face is forward, then it could determine that. That would be another potential way of de- trying to ensure the driver remains attentive. I, I was telling you in our pre-interview, we went on a car accident where a gentleman was eating McDonald's out of the bag, and the bag fell behind the seat. And so he took his hands in um, vision or took his uh, start. He just looked in the backseat basically to grab that bag and he hit a family yeah. and they were all okay. Everybody was okay, but it was a pretty, pretty big accident. And this guy ended up uh, having to go to the hospital. Um, there's no car or there's no camera in that car. He, he just made a, a bad choice. And I, I get um, that this is new technology and maybe people are a little scared of it. And I do think Tesla and other auto manufacturers are, should be required to make this as safe as, as possible. But on the other side, um, it feels like if technology is involved sometimes, then the actual responsibility of the person operating the vehicle is not a sexy news story. And they, they just completely disregard the fact that, you know, somebody wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Right. 
so I do think that it's important. And Tesla is going to activate that camera that's facing inside the cab. And GM already does this. But I don't know if it's already updated because I don't have a Tesla or if it's going to be in a future update. But it's it's coming for sure. Or And I still don't know exactly how it's going to work. Right. Well, I think I assume that'll be part of the NHTSA investigation is how good these systems are. And uh, in any of these product liability areas or product areas, product safety, there's always a question of where's the boundary of uh, safety possibilities. And hopefully we're moving forward so that a car today is much safer than a car made in the 60s. I think that's true from my own experience. Um, And the car in 10 years or 20 years will be safer than the one today. And there may be some really good systems in the future for assuring driver attentiveness. Although I looks like a big challenge to me, you know, that you can actually assure that. I agree. And this is something we also talked about in our pre-interview, but any of these systems can easily be overcome and it doesn't, it's not specific to Tesla or any other company is if somebody wants to overcome this challenge of fooling the system, they can easily. You're talking about people who intentionally try to avoid the system. Right. Yeah. Uh, There's that. And then there's the possibility of sort of the unintentional avoiding of the system. They weren't really trying to avoid the system, but they just did something that made the system not work the way it was supposed to. That's a valid point. Um, you did on the, in the manual uh, notes that you sent me, I, I highlighted one specifically and it says warning traffic aware cruise control cannot detect all objects. And especially in situations when you are driving over 50 miles an hour, may not brake, decelerate when a vehicle or object is partially in the driving lane or when the vehicle you are following moves out of your path and a stationary or slow-moving vehicle is in front of you. So that sounds like that's specifically talking about what we're talking about today. Yeah, and it's sort of funny because I went and collected all of these warnings for purposes of our podcast. I did not remember reading that. I did not know Tesla had said that in the uh, manual. I, the whole manual thing is weird because you have to go find it and download it. And when I bought the car, the manual that I downloaded was out of date already. Um, some of the features and the description of them did not correspond to the software. Um, oh, and I didn't say that Tesla has a uh, online manual in the car. You know, on the screen, yeah. you can pull up the manual. And all I would say is after three months of owning the car, I still don't know how to use it. It's very confusing to me. So <laughs> I need a class. <laughs> I don't think that's a very good method for, um, for giving somebody a manual. Cause what if, what if you need the manual and your car won't turn on, you know, like that one's what do you got not going to work for nothing. that. <laughs> Hopefully you wrote down the phone number somewhere. <laughs> right. The car will turn on, but the screen won't turn on or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, there are certainly situations, but you know, every manual has that problem that the manuals where you need it, when you need it is always an issue. Sure. That's a good point. Okay. Are you ready to get to uh, some terminology here? Sure. Okay. So what exactly is liability law? Cause I think we could all probably come up with a definition and we might, half of us might be wrong. Well, product, li- product liability uh, law in the United States is really to answer the question of if there's an accident and, and there's been damages caused by it, which might mean personal injury or death or property damage or a combination of those, who's going to pay for that? That's the question. 
really all, all the law is trying to do is try to determine who's going to pay for it. And if there's a lawsuit, usually somebody's trying to shift the payment from one person to another. When a person is injured, or they're going to pay in the sense they're the ones that suffered the injury. They can't be shifted. They're going to suffer the pain um, or being killed. Uh, and their family may suffer that. All of those things as well. You know, a spouse or a child or a parent being injured or killed, you know, that injury can't be shifted to someone else. So all, all, the only thing we can shift is money. Then we can make somebody else pay some money. Uh, so that's what it's trying to do. Under what circumstances are you going to do that? And with respect to um, accidents, car accidents, or any kind of accident, really, where there's a product involved, the question is, should the product designer, manufacturer, or seller have to pay some or all of the cost of that accident? That's really what the that area of law is about. And in car accidents specifically, you know, we think of, well, should Tesla pay? I don't think Tesla doesn't have any distributors. So the seller is usually Tesla. Tesla designs the car, so they're the designer. So they've got all, all three branches of that, designer, manufacturer, and seller. Should they, should they have to pay for the accident? That's the question. Okay. And we're going to talk more, get in more of that little bit. What is uh, strict liability and uh we can jump right in once you explain that negligence according right. to how this law works. Well, in the United States, product liability law is usually a matter of state law, not, not really federal law. And it's frequently a combination of so-called common law and statutes that have been passed. Common law means rules, rules that have been adopted by courts. Um, so the whole idea of negligence was, was created by courts um to hold somebody responsible if they were so-called negligent and strict liability uh negligence breach of warranty these are sort of different legal theories uh that might provide the detailed substance of what the liability rules are that apply to someone in this context the because this is a matter of state law there's at least 51 and i guess there's probably more 51 different sets of laws law or bodies of law that uh, regulate this. So each state has their own court-made rules and statutory rules that apply in a product liability case and the District of Columbia. Um, you have other places too that I didn't even really count in there, such as uh, Indian reservations or territories of the United States, uh, accidents that occur on the ocean, uh, accidents that occur maybe in special places like an airport. Um, so there could be a lot of different sets of rules that apply to this. So the, whatever I say about the law is more of a uh, synthesis uh, of rules that have, they have a lot of overlap and commonality, um, but you know the details can be different. So strict liability is a legal rule invented by judges initially uh, that basically says a defendant uh, or party um, who manufactures a product is uh, required to make a product that's free of defects uh, that are unreasonably dangerous. And if a defect injures someone, then they will be liable, legally liable for the damages that result. That's strict liability. It doesn't matter 
if they were negligent, they may have done everything they were supposed to do, but if they made a product that was defective, well, they're going to be responsible for it. Negligence is uh, the older rule, which has been around much longer, and basically um, uh, a court would find that there's a standard of care that applies to what a person is doing um, and that the their conduct fell below that standard of care. And so we would say they were at fault because they weren't careful um, in what they were doing. Uh, if you uh, drive while you're drunk, then uh, you're, you're negligent. And if you cause an accident, then you, you can be found you know, legally negligent. Uh, for doing that, for damages that you've caused. Um, with with strict liability, you don't have to prove there's a standard of care that the person fell below, although standards are highly relevant in strict liability cases. Um, the industry standards, for example, or NHTSA standards are going to be relevant in car cases. So we complied, they're going to say we complied with all the NHTSA standards. On the other hand, if a plaintiff shows you didn't comply with the NHTSA standard and an accident resulted, then you're going to be strictly liable for the consequences of that. Um, defects in strict liability, I guess it could apply to negligence too, can be a defect in design. That is, the design falls short of um, what the design should be. And in most places, uh, product designers required to keep their product up to the state of the art for the product that's a big problem and difficulty for manufacturers and designers because the state of the art is always advancing so uh, that's a challenge and products age they've already been sold so they still have the question of how you treat the standard of the state of the art in older products um so those those are the basic kind of obligations that uh, designers, sellers, and manufacturers have. Sellers, by the way, even though you didn't design or manufacture a car and you sell it and it has a defect, you can be legally liable for it. Now, they, <clears throat> there's no way in which you would say, you know, they're at fault or, you know, that's just, you know, your local car dealer sold your car and it was a bad one. Um, they still can be liable. But uh, there are plenty of good reasons why that should be the case. Okay. And we... we I would assume that this would go without being said, but all of this only applies to U.S. law because product liability in the U.S. versus Europe, for instance, we have listeners all over the world, is very yeah. different. Yeah, well, I I don't know the law that applies in other parts of the world to any degree. So what I'm saying applies in the U.S. and I don't know to what extent it applies elsewhere. I do know there's far more product liability litigation in the U.S., I think, than anywhere um, I, there's some countries I know a little more about Mexico, for example, uh, there's some big barriers to w what we would think as usual American law. Um, one of the things, one of the revolutionary concepts in American product liability law is, um, a person who's injured can sue the manufacturer, even though they had no direct dealings with the manufacturer. That was a big change because traditionally you could only sue the party you dealt with. You know, who sold you this bad product? You could sue them, but not, you couldn't sue Ford if you didn't buy the car directly from Ford. And normally you don't buy it directly from Ford. Um, in Mexico, they still have that rule though. You can't sue the manufacturer directly. You have to go to the person that sold you the product. 
that can be a big burden and a big problem for an injured person to have to go that route. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you touched on it a little bit, but what are the manufacturer's responsibilities when it comes to designing a product? And you can be generic or you can go specifically into this autopilot thing uh, or both your choice. Yeah. Well, let's start with the, the general principle is that a product has to be reasonably safe for its intended uses and for foreseeable misuses. So um, that's a surprise to most people, that the product is supposed to be designed for foreseeable misuses. A uh, manufacturer can't simply say, say in a Tesla accident, you say, well, this guy was, he was intoxicated. Um, or any car manufacturer says the driver was intoxicated. Well, okay, it's foreseeable to car manufacturers and designers that people drive while they're intoxicated. And you have to take that into account when you design your car. And some of the principles for car design that have come out of this are something like crashworthiness. So a car has to be made so it can, to the extent feasible, uh, it will withstand a crash without causing injury to the driver or minimizing the injury or reducing the injury. Uh, I think uh, seatbelts is an example of that. That's one feature of a car. Seatbelts protect people in the event of crashes. You know, they're not doing anything if you don't crash. So they're there when you have a crash. And we've all seen the pictures of the test dummies. You know, people, uh, manufacturers have to drive their car into a wall and see how the test dummy fares. So you can measure the kind of forces and the impact and the injuries that a person would receive in those kinds of crashes. Uh, those are all examples of responsibilities the manufacturer has. And those don't go away just because the driver did something wrong. The driver was intoxicated. Uh, that doesn't absolve the manufacturer from their duties uh, to make the car crash worthy. And of course, there are limits to that. You know, if you drive your Tesla at 130 miles an hour, as you could, into a brick wall, then uh, crashworthiness is not really going to be an issue. You know, nobody's going to make a car that's going to save you in that in that context. There are limits uh, on what can be done. So, the, the the way the standard the legal standard is stated, usually, the product has to be reasonably safe. It doesn't have to be one hundred percent absolutely safe under all circumstances. It's what's called reasonably safe, and of course, that's frequently an area for disagreement between uh, plaintiffs and defendants or between the government and uh, manufacturers in these situations. Um, the other salient feature here is, uh, and I think this is true everywhere, uh, but it's also a matter of state law, and these rules can get really tricky and complicated, but normally the fact finder, which will be a jury in most cases, or a judge, if it's a judge trial, will apportion the damages among uh, the people who have been determined to be responsible for them in the trial. So that would mean in a simple, in the simplest situation, one plaintiff and one defendant, and suppose you're talking about a car uh, accident and the driver was inattentive, not paying attention and uh, ran into a fire truck parked in the lane and the jury decides, well, they're responsible. They were negligent. 
Uh, but the jury also found that they could, I'm not saying they would or they ever have, but maybe they def- decide that the Tesla system didn't work right and it should have been better or you should have made sure they were paying attention or the jury made some finding that held the, the car manufacturer, designer manufacturer responsible for that accident. Also, they will then apportion that fault or responsibility among those two people. They might say, well, plaintiff, you're 50% at fault. Defendant, you're 50% at fault. So the defendant will, the plaintiff will only be able to recover 50% of their damages. Um, Now, those rules can get really tricky and complicated. Uh, Some states um, have a rule that if the plaintiff is more than 50% at fault, they get nothing, which is uh, a little harsh. It can be harsh. for people who are absent and not uncommonly um, in a work situation, uh, if a worker in a factory, say, got involved in an accident or, say, a worker driving a car for their employer, uh, somebody says, well, the employer was at fault for X, Y, and Z reason, the jury will never consider that and will never hear the evidence about it because we have special rules for employers who provide workers' compensation insurance. Uh, what they get in return is they're immune from liability in product liability cases. They'll have to pay, you know, according to the statutory rules, the lost wages um, and medical bills. They never have to pay for other things like pain and suffering. Or the normally don't have to pay for the pain and suffering experienced by your family members. You know, if your spouse may suffer greatly because of an accident someone's involved in, but the employer will never have to pay that. The um, defendant in a products case may have to pay that, though. So those rules can be complicated, but responsibility will be apportioned in some way among the responsible people. I think the biggest biggest point of this, one of the things that just prompted me to, I think I wrote an email to Allison uh, over at Nocillacast. Um, and it was in response, I think, to hearing you and her talking when you were on the show. A uh, common misperception was that if the plaintiff, well, you know, and you've seen this posted on many websites, if the plaintiff wasn't paying attention, well, then Tesla's not going to be responsible for the accident. You know, they were breaking the rules. Tesla says you have to pay attention. If you weren't paying attention, then Tesla's off the hook. And the answer is no, that's not true. Tesla's not off the hook for that. That doesn't mean they're on the hook, but the plaintiff still has to prove, you know, their case, but they're not automatically off the hook. Right. It's, it's not as, I mean, who, other than lawyers, who else understands, really understands the law? You might understand a portion of it. Like, I know that I can't just take somebody against their will because I'm I'm now kidnapping to the hospital. Um, but I, so I know my little portion for my job, right? But yep. in general, even lawyers specialize yep. because the law is so broad and vast. Uh, but I think we see things uh, the way we think a reasonable person, reasonable person should see them. Right. Um, and that is not what uh, how the law is made up. It doesn't mean that the law doesn't make sense. It just means there's more in the background that we don't understand. Well, I, I worked in this area for, you know, 35 years uh, and I have an engineering degree and a law degree. And I couldn't necessarily look at a product or a situation and tell you whether there will be liability. 
many times will be left to guess. Um, our whole system for this, we have an uh, um, impartial fact finder, usually a jury. But a jury is frequently made up, well, it's going to be in a make of order, ordinary citizens. And if you have a product case where you're in dealing with some fairly difficult technical issues, I know juries don't understand them many times. It's just beyond them to understand them. And you get a combination of people that don't. And so you end up with uh, fact finders who may do things that are surprising to you and you think are, and which, you know, you may think are contrary to, you know, what they should have found. So it's a lot of uncertainty. Now we'll say, I mean, maybe it would be, you would say, it would be nice if the card designer knew if I do X, I won't be liable in this, these situations, but they can never know that. They can never know what is X, you know, what is it that's going to protect me from any liability? It just is not possible. Now that uncertainty, I mean, in some ways you could say that uncertainty is a feature, not a bug in the product liability system, because it is a spur to manufacturers to constantly look for, and they do this. I know some people may not believe it, but they do this. They're constantly looking for risks and hazards associated with their product and ways of reducing them. And corporations are they're not human beings, and they really don't have a set of moral values as a corporation, and we shouldn't expect them to. What they do have is a responsibility and a desire to um, uh, make a profit. And they can't make a profit if their reputation's in the toilet because they made a bunch of crappy products and people won't buy them anymore. And there are, of course, in those corporations, and I've known many of them, individuals who very deeply care about the safety of their products and do everything they can to make them safe. But if we're looking at it from a policy point of view, we should just treat the corporation as an entity who's motivated as, as this is the way they're set up, the way they are. This is the system we've designed. They're set up to make money and money is going to motivate them. And all those things, including making safe products is part of what will motivate them. Part of their public relations will be a big part of it. You won't hear um, the CEO of the company say, I'm only doing this because it's going to cost me too much money. Uh, that may be true, but they are not. They're going to, the, the, the company representatives are come out, they're going to come out and say, we want our products to be as safe as we can make them. That is what we're committed to and what we're dedicated to. And I, that's probably true. In many instances, that is true. That's what they want to do. But ultimately, the money motivates them and will motivate them. And that is not a bad thing, in my view. That's just the way it is. Right. And I would agree with that. And I think that's a, a great way to end the show here. But I, I'll just add one little thing is if a company sits on a product for too long and tries to make continuously make it as safe as they can, and then they're yeah. second, third, fourth to market or never to market, they're not going to make any money either. So I, I think a healthy middle ground, like you were saying, is... Is certainly a good thing. Yeah, ultimately, they have to decide where to draw the line, how much to spend on A, B, or C safety feature. Um, they have to make that choice. Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on and, and explaining how all of this stuff works. I think it gives us a, a kind of a better view 
on how to not only look at the autopilot issue right now, but also future uh, issues that are going to come up because, you know, you got Konas and bolts catching on fire. And I mean, it goes, right. it, this is not going to be the only um, issue with electric vehicles going forward. So yeah, let me, let me say one little thing is I looked for, and I did not find any lawsuits where there were published decisions related to Tesla's uh, autopilot. And we know, there, we know of 12 accidents that are under investigation by NHTSA, but no lawsuits or have any reported decisions. That's not that surprising. Most of these matters get resolved uh, between injured people and the company or the company's insurance company. Usually they get settled for an amount both sides are willing to pay and accept. Um, so it has not been the, the laws in the background and motivates both sides. But uh, we haven't seen any any uh, verdicts related to any of these issues that I know of with any electric cars that I know of. Certainly not Teslas. Do you have anything you want to plug? I don't. I didn't ask you this before no. the show, so I can no. cut it out if you don't. I do not. <laughs> I'm not selling anything at all. <laughs> Nothing all to right. plug. I do think you should probably have a podcast, though, because you, you, you did really good today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> all right, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay. Bye. All right. That was our interview with Tom Cooper. I hope you all learned something. I learned a ton. And you know what? One of the most valuable things that I learned, and I don't remember if this is in the interview or not, and I don't think it is. I think Tom mentioned it afterwards, is there's a term when you do something over and over and over again, even though it's risky and you just continue doing it uh, because you got away with it the first time. And to give you an example, that's like if you were to uh, be driving down the road and you text. Maybe the first time you text, you're really kind of paranoid as to what's going on. But every time after that, you start paying attention less and less and less. And pretty soon your whole focus is on your phone and it's none of your focus is on the road, right? That's actually called repeated benign exposure. So this episode, it's going to be this, the, the episode's going to be titled Interview Tom Cooper, but I really wanted to title it uh, Repeated Benign Exposure because uh, the fact that there is a name for something that I talk about all the time and now I know it and now you know it. And when I, when I, when I talk to somebody in a conversation and they're like, oh, these people are texting and why are they doing that? I can say, well, that's just repeated benign exposure. And then I'm just going to leave it there and I'm going to end the conversation, just like George Costanza when he would end everything on a high note. Speaking of leaving on a high note, that's it for me, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Hope you all had a wonderful week. I hope that your next week, before I get to talk to you again, is also wonderful. And I will talk to you next week. I love you, Norm MacDonald. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.